point towards you with if there's a comedian now listening to the podcast and they're like on london circuit or any sort of circuit in the uk and they're struggling to progress to like to be where you are now what 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 is your day-to-day routine when you were a pro comedian like how hard did you have to work to get to where you are like the daily routine and how does they how do they get in with these good clubs what's the right way to go about doing it okay um i mean it's all changed now so who who knows whether my answers will be relevant anymore because the entire industry has changed but let me let me take kind of take you through my routines i guess before lockdown um the thing i loved about my life and career is that i never knew what my days were going to look like until the end of the day because you get a last minute phone call offering you something or an audition for something or um so every week is different the routine i have in my life is that i have children therefore i do the school run in the morning so i take the kids to school uh, i would normally then have gone to the gym or something just to work out a bit of tension and frustration to start my day um i'll then go and set up in my office where i would do a combination of admin writing applying for gigs invoicing for gigs chasing invoices for gigs um so there's a lot of admin especially not having an agent there's a lot of admin that you have to do to get the gigs but you then also have to keep writing so you're thinking about jokes you want to write thinking about if it's topical stuff you're reading the news seeing what jokes um you want to come up with um applying for gigs is just about responding to facebook posts or emails that come in with people asking you to apply um doing the admin with festival stuff so applying for festivals doing the promo stuff um the writing is a huge part of it and then a couple of nights a week you want to be doing new material nights so open mic gigs where they'll let you do new material as a more established comedian or pro new material nights where everyone there is doing new um and for that you need to be developing material the whole time it could be stuff you've done previously that you're you're building on it doesn't all have to be brand new and i think a lot of newer comedians make the mistake of thinking well i got a laugh on that so that's ready i'll bank that and i'll move on and write something new but actually jokes are developing all the time so you should constantly be thinking about how you can improve a joke and make it yours um i then have to pick up the kids from school help you know around the house do dinner do tidying sorting things out um since lockdown started that routine has changed dramatically because i have been homeschooling as well so i had to become a teacher which meant i had to kind of learn what i needed to do um i had to entertain my children which involved a lot of disney plus um i also had to think about ways to actually make myself viable as a comedian still and i know the government's telling us we're not viable anymore but they are wrong um so i created a podcast and i created a children's comedy show which meant i was having to do some filming some recording some writing 
some admin with that to get things going. I've now brought out a, a joke book, um, which meant I had to put that together. I now have to do the promo for that, or the PR for it, Facebook advertising, all, all of that stuff. Plus, when the book arrives next week, or this week, actually, Monday, when the, the book arrives, I'll have to start packaging them into envelopes and get them down to the post office to send out to the people that already bought them. So my life is, a, uh, it's not a routine. It's never been a routine. I, I go to bed <clears throat> at stupid o'clock and I have to wake up at stupid o'clock because I've got young kids that don't appreciate lions. Um, so I'll often be working late into the night, writing or developing projects I'm doing. I try very hard during lockdown to engage with other comedians. So I'm part of a, a Zoom writing group that gets together once a week and other comedians, instead of just WhatsApping, try and speak to them on the phone or FaceTiming so that you can actually see and engage with people, doing other people's podcasts, partly to promote things like the joke book and partly because actually you want to talk to people and you want to take part in uh, game shows that they're doing or chats that they're having. So it's, there's no routine. If you want to become a full-time stand-up comedian, you just have to be so flexible and so open to change. I don't think I've ever really done well with, right, at nine o'clock I'll do this, at 10 o'clock I'll do that, at 12 o'clock I'll do that, because that's just not how my brain works. Some comedians use a writing technique. I think it's called the Pomodoro or Paloma. I, you might need to look that one up. It's, it, there's, there's a writing technique that has a name, which is very specific of, you, I think it's you write for 25 minutes, you break for five minutes, you write for 25 minutes, you break. And some people find that very, very um, successful. I really want to know what it's called now. It, it's, um, so oh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to. It is. Was, what, the Pomodoro technique. Pomodoro. Okay. So, I, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's brilliant. I've not managed to make it work for me just because there's so much going on with the childcare. And I'm not meant to call it childcare when it's my own children, but with childcare, with sustaining a relationship, sustaining a household, doing podcasts, doing the children's book. I don't have that routine generally. Um, but you have to stay flexible. You have to keep writing. You've got to keep networking. The thing I say to any new comedian who says the secret to anyone's success on the circuit is just don't be a dick. This is a very small industry. We all know each other. Everyone talks. <clears throat> just network and be nice with people. Just chat, just support, offer advice. If, if someone, if someone has a joke that you think can be improved, then offer offer that for you know free of charge just help them out don't nick their jokes don't plagiarize don't steal material don't you'll get caught um if you're still plugging away after 10 years and you haven't progressed beyond the open mic circuit then maybe that's where you're going to stay as well i don't want to sound really harsh but people do find the comedians they want to book for paid gigs. 
And if you're not being booked for those gigs, then there's a reason. And it might be that you're not nice to work with, or it might be that you're not funny. One or the other. <laughs> and then, and there may be lots of other reasons that, you know, I, there are loads of gigs, by the way, I don't get booked for. I don't want anyone thinking I'm putting myself out there as some kind of guru of everything loads of gigs out there that i can't get and sometimes it's because they don't think i'm funny or sometimes it's because they don't want another white middle-class male on the lineup <coughs> maybe there are some that don't book me because i'm jewish i don't know i've never had that directly but there are loads of reasons we don't get booked for comedy but if you're still after 10 years or five years or whatever if if, if you are thinking about doing comedy for a career and you're still not progressing to paid work after a significant amount of time, then maybe that's not your journey. Hmm. All right. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Mars World Podcast, a podcast where we speak to tantalizing and fascinating people with unique insights who can make people like you and me make what we love a full-time job. If you like the podcast, leave a review on iTunes and share it with your friends. If you don't, just say nothing. <laughs> In this episode today, we speak to the fantastic and hilarious Philip Simon, a professional comedian on the UK comedy circuit who has managed to make a fantastic career out of comedy or with sheer graft and determination. He's performed in many of the best comedy clubs in the UK, and he is here today to inform us on what it takes to be a UK professional comedian. Hello, Philip. Hi, how are you? Not too bad. I've been okay so far. I'm in good. Oh, I'm doing well. What about you? <laughs> I'm, I'm all right. I've put my back out this week, so I'm feeling very sorry for myself, uh, but I'm other than that, I'm all right. Busy. Busy. And so, Philip, I mean, like, what, what's, how's, how's everything been? Like, what's, what's, how, how did you, like, start on comedy? And, like, how, how have things changed for you since lockdown? Um, well, I started in comedy after being an actor for about 10 years. Um, so in about 2011, I did a comedy course at the comedy school in Camden, which changed my life. Uh, and I knew from day one of that course, this is what I wanted to do. Uh, and after that, I just went out on the circuit and started gigging, went full time, probably in about 2015, 16, um, and was making a living very nicely, uh, doing gigs, doing corporates, uh, doing writing and then lockdown happened overnight my diary emptied uh, I'm not the only one it happened to everyone it happened to lots of people uh, it was awful just awful timing for me in the week that I lost uh, that in the week the lockdown happened I lost a corporate gig a regular gig and a tv commercial filming so it was a diabolical week and then I had to go into homeschooling my children um, which wasn't great because I'm not a teacher um, I don't know if how many of your listeners will have children but it 
it's it made it very difficult to then focus on comedy because my wife was working full time as well because she's a key worker so she was working uh, so I was trying to work she was trying to work between us doing the homeschooling clubs closing a few clubs won't come back I had my own comedy club where we had loads of dates booked in all got taken out of the diary as well uh, I had gigs abroad that got cancelled um, some postponed till next year, but who knows where we'll be next year. So it was, yeah, it was a really, really awful time for comedians. And obviously, as many people know, we also got abandoned a little bit by the government. Some people got some support and others got zero support from the government, which just made it impossible for people to earn a living. And it's, it's been quite an, for quite a, changing time i mean like i know that comedians like john pendle has moved away from the comedy circuit and there's many like comedians at the top of the game who've, who've left comedy completely yeah I, and there's loads actually um a lot of people have taken part-time jobs because they've had to some have taken part-time jobs because they wanted to some have left it completely and hopefully will return um when things pick up because comedy is the kind of thing you can kind of come back to um i've been very lucky uh, i haven't yet taken on a part-time job or a, a i suppose a full-time job i i do bits and pieces to help out some admin work here and there to help with a little bit of extra money coming in but because i i started a couple of lockdown comedy projects that have been all right um i've been able to to continue doing some comedy work but the diary is largely empty simply because uh there's no confidence people aren't going to comedy clubs people aren't booking comedy even when comedy clubs started to book again they were having to cancel really uh last minute and then you don't get cancellation fees so everyone the entire comedy circuit has been decimated so the fact that people are finding work elsewhere hats off to them because if you know we've, we've got to do what we what we can to survive yeah it's it's a bit of a but i mean what do you there's a silver lining to a lot of things in this world and what do you think the silver lining will yeah. be with this um it's really hard to know what the silver lining is actually because I think a lot of us feel abandoned a lot of us thought that we were doing all right on the comedy circuit that we were being looked after by the industry and actually a lot of people have been completely left out in the cold so it's bleak for most people I suppose silver linings are that um, more people who stick at it will be given more opportunities when the comedy circuit comes back so those of us that have been able to work doing comedy uh will hopefully have more opportunities um people realize the need for the arts so i think although the government has let us down massively i think the public have realized that there is a need for entertainment and the arts and perhaps they will be more appreciative when they come to comedy clubs and see live comedians doing their thing um but it's bleak. I, I, it's, <laughs> I'm desperately trying to think of a silver lining to share with you. Um, 
I guess if maybe it's our creativity, maybe the fact that we, those of us that have stuck at it, have been able to come up with more creative ways of developing as comedians. Um, the projects that we've done, the podcasts that have started up, people have put out books and shows. So maybe it's that, maybe that we have been challenged to create more and that has made our output more impressive. And what do you think will happen to like the festivals of like the Edinburgh Fringe and all that? <clears throat> well, I think the, the Edinburgh Fringe is probably too big to just disappear. My fear with the Edinburgh Fringe is that the little people will be forgotten. So the smaller venues who may well have closed by the time the fringe comes round. I, I did the free fringe for the last few years, PBH free fringe. Um, and my worry is that those venues will have closed because they won't have been able to trade for the past 10 months or so. They, they will have lost their income. Um, and when it comes to putting back the free fringe shows, those venues won't exist anymore. And the only venues that will, will be the, the huge, you know, the big, the big ones like assembly and pleasance and uh, underbelly and things like that. And that's great for those people that can afford to do the fringe in that way, or those people that have agents backing them to do the fringe. But I really, I worry that we are going to lose some of the, smaller grassroots fringe shows and fringe performers because no one knows what's going to happen. People might not take a risk. Audiences might not go because they don't want to congregate in cities in the same way they would have done a year ago. So people going to Edinburgh, um, it's, and it's, it's a huge risk whether, whether it also means on the flip side that those people that do go will have better audiences because they'll be the only ones there. That, that might work in their favour. Um, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. That I think this week the PBH Free Fringe sent out the applications for 2021. So clearly people are optimistic it will go ahead in some form. But we need a vaccine and we need people to have trust in the government that the vaccine will work and that um, we won't go ahead and start planning everything and then they, they cancel it at the last minute. It's, I mean, it will probably, do you feel it will probably take, I mean, comedy is going to change forever, but like when it does, it will return, like maybe three or four years after things are finished. What, you say that audiences will be more appreciative and maybe they'll be less heckling. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like a heckly audience, actually. I, I don't, as long as they're not being dickheads, I quite like it when they... Uh, get involved. I'm a compare quite a lot and I, I engage with the audience when I do sets as well. I like the interaction. This is one of the reasons I don't love doing the online gigs because if you can't engage with an audience, there's, you lose a certain layer to it. And at the moment you can with Zoom and, and some of them are interactive. You can have the audience participate. But if you can't, um, if you can't have a real, like a real time conversation with somebody, what's your name, what do you do or whatever it is. So I don't mind a bit of interaction. Uh, hopefully, yes, less asshole heckly, heckly would be nice for sure. Um, 
I think the comedy circuit in three or four years time will, there'll be a boom. I, I, I'm, I'm optimistic for that. I don't think we will disappear. I think comedy has always been something that challenges authority, something that um, pokes fun at the, uh, the power institutions like the government and so on. I mean, look at things like Spitting Image or uh, any kind of parody, Mock the Week, shows like that. Have I got news for you? The news quiz. Any topical satirical show is there specifically to make fun of the, uh, the establishment, really. And so long as we don't reach a point where we are cancelling every comedian that makes any joke that goes against the establishment, then I think comedy will come back bigger and better and stronger in a few years' time. Um, and the comedians that are working during lockdown to make that happen, hopefully are the ones that will benefit from that in the, um, in the long run. And, yeah, I think one of the things maybe, one thing with comedy is that it's not as well supported as other sort of art forms. And it's, it's treated as a lot more disdain because people can make jokes in a pub and they often assume that you can just do the same on stage. And like, for, for, for people that are like, oh, you're a comedian. And, and you must get that a lot. Like, oh, I'm a comedian. Hear this joke. And they've probably got it off someone yeah. who's got it off a comedian. And they're like, oh, I know that joke already. What would you say to them? <laughs> I, I'd say you've got a real job, don't take mine. Um, <laughs> I, I, think, I think we are in a very different industry for most people. I, I, have, I found this when I was an actor and I find it as a comedian when you see the reality shows, you know, like the, the audition reality shows where they go, like Britain's Got Talent, X Factor, the, the ones where they're, they're trying to find a star from someone who worked in admin or whatever and you think well hang on a minute, what about the people that trained the people that trained for years to learn how to do something and why not audition them and give them the job rather than trying to find a, a star off the street there are people that can do it because they're funny and there are people that can do it because they're committed enough to actually spend time writing jokes and honing jokes and going to clubs and trying jokes and failing having jokes die having jokes improve there is a difference between doing something to make your friends laugh at the pub and doing it for a living, you know? And I, I don't think we're in danger of the, the funny guy at the pub taking our jobs. But I do think that people are realizing that it is maybe easier, especially with things like Facebook, Twitter, where you, anyone can put jokes online it's very easy to nick jokes and you you put a, a fantastic joke up on social media someone nicks it they might have many more followers than you so they get thousands more likes now, i say on tiktok all the time i put a joke out on tiktok i film myself telling a joke and it, it does all right you know for me it goes semi-viral I, I guess and then you see someone on else on TikTok who's got millions of followers who does a similar joke or the same joke or even no joke. They just it's them making some toast and that gets millions of likes. And you think, well, you know, we, we like as an as a country, we like non-professionals doing 
a professional's job for comedy, for acting, for singing, whatever. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't have a reality show to find a surgeon, would you? No, <laughs> yeah. you wouldn't. It's, but w w what goes into, <clears throat> as you said before we start the podcast, like people that have made it successful, most of the time it's not mm. luck, it's because they earned it and they deserve it and they've worked hard to get there. But I mean, for people that misunderstand comedians, how would you sort of like inform them of like the effort it takes to write good jokes that work in various different rooms across the country and get you booked and all that? <clears throat> yeah, I think it's important to realise that the successful people that we see have worked hard to get where they are, even if you don't like them. You know, comedy, I think comedy is a meritocracy. I think the cream does rise to the top. You, there's always going to be someone who's a favourite or looks right or, you know, ticks a certain box that means agents go, well, we need, we need this person. We, need, we don't have one of those, so we'll put them in. And so there's always going to be that. But if someone isn't funny, they aren't going to get asked back on Mock the Week, on Live at the Apollo or whatever. They're, you know, it is a meritocracy. Those people have worked really hard to get where they are. And they've worked hard by sitting down, writing jokes, honing those jokes, or going onto stage and working out the jokes with an audience there, but then doing the work. It's not just about making people laugh down the pub. It's having the discipline so that a joke works, as you said, in every room around the country. Because I think it was Sarah Millican said her goal was to be funny in every room. Some comedians are very happy just playing, um, you know, the comedy store and they don't care that they never play a cricket club in the middle of nowhere because their jokes don't work there. But if you can be funny in every single room that you go into because the jokes you've written are clever and funny and kind of accessible to everybody, then that's great. Whereas if you only appeal to one particular type of audience, you'll find your audience and that would be great, but you're, you'll be certainly far less mainstream. What? Because sometimes there's a bit of divide on this. Some comedians say that not every room is playable and then some are on the other side where it's never the audience's fault and you've got to make them laugh. What is your sort of opinion on that? Um, I'm... I'm quite a purist. Uh, I, I went to drama school, I became an actor, and I have this belief that when you stand on stage and your job is to entertain people, your job is to entertain people. Um, their job is to be entertained, and no one has gone to the theatre or a comedy club to have a bad time. No one is walking in going, huh, hate comedy, this is going to be awful. And if they are, it's because they're with a partner who's taken them to comedy or taken them to the theatre. But you're, for those people, for, forget them because they're in the minority. You're never going to win them around by trying to win them around. So you focus on the ones that want to be there. And I'd say 99% of the people that go to comedy want to be there. They might have had a bad day. They might have been dumped. They might have had some bad news. They might have uh, been ill. They might have put their back out and they're, they're just not in the right frame of mind, but they want to be entertained and your job is to entertain them. Your job is not to kind of 
stare them out and go, well, you're, you're just here to have a bad time. So I'm not even going to try and entertain you. Um, if people heckle and they're, they're disrupting the, your set and your, the whole room, then yeah, lay into them. And, you know, I, I guess if you're a lawyer, you would treat someone as a hostile witness. If you were, uh, kind of interrogating someone or cross-examining someone and for comedy you can treat people like that but I don't think people go to have a bad time so I think every room is playable but I know that there are a lot of comedians who would look at a room and I've, I've played those rooms as well I did a gig I'm not going to say whose gig it was but I did a gig a, a little while ago um, in a casino where we weren't allowed to stop the punters playing whatever games they were playing, blackjack, poker, whatever, because that, that's how the casino made their money. We just had to stand in the middle of the room doing comedy. We had a microphone and we had ourselves telling jokes. There was a few people sat watching and the rest were all just playing cards or blackjack or whatever. Now, on paper, that's an unplayable room. But with the right comics, we made it a playable room because we went up there, we did our set, we engaged with the people that we could engage with. And the, the venue were happy. So if you're good at what you do, you can make any room playable. And what you did was you, did you just perform to the ones that are watching and you just left the table alone? <clears throat> We, we reference the tables because you, I think as a comedian, you can't not reference what's in the room in front of you, but we weren't allowed to engage with them because obviously they, they needed to be gambling because that's how the venue were making money. Um, and you can't, as soon as you embarrass someone for doing what they're there to be, do, to be doing, they'll just stop doing it and they'll leave. Um, you know, if we would, if you were doing a, a gig in a brothel and you were taking the mick out of the people that were having lap dances or going off for a quickie with one of the, the people working uh, at the brothel, then the, the owners would be like, well, hang on a minute, that's our livelihood. You're just here to provide a little bit of entertainment. So we, we entertained the people that wanted to be entertained, but the room wasn't playable. You walked in, you're like, this is not set up in any way for comedy, but we made the gig work because that's what, that's what our job was. And so you just basically focus on the people that are watching and engaging and you just, and how did you sort of mention the tables without, as you say, putting them off? Well, I, th I think for me, I, I, so I spoke to the people that were watching, I did my set. Um, and then if, if I noticed someone who was playing the game was watching me or, or laughed at one of the jokes, uh, I might, uh, I, I would have referenced that and, and kind of directed it towards the audience, but referenced the fact that somebody who uh, should have been focusing on their hand was actually now focusing on me. Um, so it's all right. It was, you know, 15 minutes at, at this at this point, I'll take any paid gig. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, put, put me in a room that seems unplayable and it's, it's still a better gig than I've had in nine months. It's, that's one thing I find quite funny. 
especially at the lower end, sometimes I see people even at the sort of the small gigs or just open micers, they they're not they're bombing with the material, but they don't change it at all. They're just like, oh, I need to do my set, and then they go off. But but like you know, the audience aren't going to give you a chance to test your material unless they're laughing at other stuff you've done beforehand, and so you like you're wasting their time in a way, aren't you? If you do that, unless you can get away with that and they're laughing, but if the, you're bombing and you're still doing that, then that's. But I think sometimes you need to work out why someone's bombing because sometimes you're bombing because you're doing your material that the audience just aren't engaging with because maybe you're a political comedian and this isn't a political crowd, but on an open mic night, you're one of 10, maybe 20 acts. So yours, this isn't the type of comedy they want. You find your audience, you find a political audience and, um, there was a comedian I was on the circuit with at the beginning, really, really funny. I think his name was Alex Chapman, really funny political comedian. And he never really did well at open mics. And then I went to see his Edinburgh show and it was astounding. It was really funny, really good. And the audience lapped it up because they were a political audience. They had come wanting political comedy and he had provided that. Um, Whereas when, I, when we did open mic nights together, you have an audience that just want, uh, want comedy. And you, there are so many genres, political, musical, uh, one-liner, anecdotal, narrative, you know, so many different genres of comedy that they're not going to like everyone. So this, he might have had a non-political crowd. So if you're bombing at a comedy night, and at an open mic night, there's possibly a reason, which is that they're just not into your style of comedy and you'll find your audience. It might be that your jokes are terrible. And I've gigged with many comedians who just are blind to the fact that their jokes are terrible. And that's when you need to be big enough to take advice from other people. Listen, ask for advice. If you're at an open mic gig and there's a pro comedian headlining or trying new material ask them for some feedback talk to them they will love it i i when i started out i used to ask for feedback from the headliners all the time even from you know tv level names and they love it if you're on a car share with somebody ask for advice ask them to tw help you tweak jokes ask them i think i think this is on along the right lines but i'm not quite getting the laugh i think it deserves and eventually you might just have to accept a joke isn't funny and ditch it because it's just not funny. You might come back to it in a few years time. It might, might be funny then when it's found a better place in your set. But how, how does the sort of thing of like balancing who you are as a comedian to balancing like meeting the needs of the audience as an entertainer? How do you balance the two sort of areas out? So I'm very, very needy and I will do whatever it takes to get an audience to like me, even if that means changing a little bit who I am. There are some comedians, often better comedians, by the way, who are like, nope, this is who I am. I will find my audience and it may only be one or two of you, but that one or two of you will come to my next gig and then two or three of you, three or four of you. So I'm quite needy. 
So I would rather have a room full of people laughing with my mainstream, fairly accessible jokes than worry about I must be true to myself. Now, I, I know what's funny. I know what, which of my jokes are funny. But if I, if I have a joke that I'm really passionate about and it's not working, I'll ditch it. Whereas other comedians who are really passionate about their jokes will be like, if you don't like it, that's your problem, not mine. I won't tell an audience that. I, I don't like it when comedians are like, huh, you, that deserved more. I don't oh, like God. it when comedians... <laughs> I don't like it when comedians tell an audience off for not, um, for not laughing at their jokes, because it's not the audience's fault if they didn't laugh at your joke. Mm. That's, a bit, that's a bit like you're putting them in a corner as well. You're getting even more offensive. Like, first of all, they're not finding it funny, but when you insult yeah. them, you're putting their backs up even more. Yeah. And any time you tell an audience that they're doing something wrong, it makes it harder for you and for the rest of the acts to then win them over. Okay. And how do you sort of, because I was hearing with Sam Russell and he said in one of the angel comedy writing workshops that you have, you adjust mm. different sets and you've got to do play different rooms. I mean, there's some comedians that have very great careers who don't do that and they have their niche, but they don't get booked in certain places. But how, how do you sort of adjust you're out to different places, if you don't mind me asking. The, the only way I really adjust my act is my level of swearing. So I might, I, I'm, not, I'm not very crude, but I do swear. And I might tone that down if I'm asked not to swear for a certain crowd. I'm Jewish, about being Jewish on stage. And I do that with a Jewish audience, I do that with a non-Jewish audience. I don't, I don't kind of pretend to be something I'm not for a particular crowd. And if people, when they hear that I'm Jewish, if they start become anti-Semitic in their approach to me, I can normally play off that and win uh, if it becomes a, a heckle battle. Um, but I. I tend to just stick to what I do. And then there are rooms I obviously can't play or don't play because I might not get booked for. When you see the bigger names doing it, like the TV celebrity names doing it, they've, they might stick to who they are now, but who knows what they were like when they started out. But I think everyone, when they start out, want, we chase the laughs. So until you find out who you are as a comedian, and that might take five years to to really know who you are as a comedian. Um, I think most people are chasing the laughs. Or, or more in some cases, isn't it? In terms of finding out who you are. It could take decades. One, one thing I want to get at is, what's the question I wanted to ask? <clears throat> so with the heckling, I mean, because you're Jewish, you probably get the same sort of thing said to you. So you can probably sort of guess what they're going to say. With a lot of like different stereotypes, the heckles you're going to get is probably the same thing. Am I right in saying that? Yeah. I, I mean, there's very little heckling about being Jewish. Mostly there's a different, there's a tension in the room. So if I'm in London 
or a big city, London, Manchester, Edinburgh, Leeds, Brighton, where there is a fairly big Jewish population. Um, you mentioned that you're Jewish and chances are there's someone in the audience that's Jewish. I'll always ask. Often they won't admit to it because they don't want to out themselves, which is fair enough. Times are, times are not easy at the moment. Um, but there's normally someone in the audience. If you go to much smaller towns and village halls and areas where there aren't any Jews and there have never been any Jews, then the tension that you feel isn't, isn't a bad tension. It's just, oh, what's he going to say? This is, is this going to get political? Is it going to, is it a Labour Party thing? Is it, you know, it's going, it's, it's kind of what's going to happen. The few times I've had actual heckles about being Jewish, normally you just out them for, out them for being racist. You don't really engage with too much back and forth because they don't deserve to be given that limelight. They are being racist. They are being anti-Semitic and they need to be called out on that. What I normally get is people coming up to me afterwards and either telling me their favorite Jewish joke, which normally turns out to be their favorite racist joke <laughs> or, or saying things like, Oh, you're you're a Jew. You must support Tottenham. As I actually, I don't, I don't support any football team. But okay, if I because <laughs> all Jews support Tottenham, um, so it's things like that. There's I've I've only had a couple of occasions where I've felt truly threatened for a heckle that's come back at me. But because you're on stage, you've got license to kind of get away with saying what you want to say. The microphone is a wonderful, powerful tool to be able to call someone out for their racism. Um, but I've not really had to worry too much about full on heckles because I think people are realizing they can't, they just can't shout out things like that. You wouldn't, if, if it was a black comedian, they wouldn't start shouting out the N word at them because they know that the rest of the crowd would turn on them. So, my, I, I like talking about being Jewish on stage when I'm in an area that doesn't really have much Jewish connection because that's the joke. The joke on them, I guess, is that they've never met a Jew. And so I get to, I've had gasps. You know, sometimes you say, uh, I, I'm Jewish. Any, any other Jews in the room? And you get people giggling at the very question. They gasp at the thought. And then you can play on that, that the idea that why you're horrified that there might be a Jew in the room. What's that all about? And you can play on that and it lightens the mood because you're joking about their, um, their response, which wasn't anti-Semitic. It wasn't racist. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's very little, I'd say there's very few times where I've genuinely felt threatened. Okay. And with, so following on from that, I mean, most of the time when someone heckles, they're joining in effectively. And that's why you say you enjoy it. Cause it's just like a bit of banter and yeah. it has a bit more spice to the comedy show and unpredictability. Yeah. Yeah. It's a conversation. Comedy is a conversation between you and the audience. And it's just someone's joining in the conversation. A lot of heckling is commentating. So you'll say, you know, Oh, don't you hate it when you're on a zoom call? And people were like, I've been on a Zoom call. Like, yeah, okay, thanks for 
thanks for playing. Um, but rest assured, I've got five minutes of material about Zoom calls that I want to tell you. So it, it's commentating, or is them nudging their friend, talking to them about something they've, something they've thought of based on what you said. There's very little, like the, the classic heckle of get off your shit doesn't happen. Yeah, it's not, that's not, I don't know, maybe some comedians get that, but it generally, security and the, the promoters have provided a nice audience and a nice atmosphere where people tend not to heckle. It's the drunk stags and hens and the people who think that everything is about them or they think they're watching TV so they can talk a bit louder because no one can hear them. And you're like, I'm, I'm right here. I can hear everything you're saying. What is it you want to, to do? What, how do you want to get involved? What, you know, so generally it's, it's commentating and it's, it's engaging rather than heckling. Hope you don't mind me asking this. I want to give sort of set scenarios and I want to ask you what you would sort of do in them. So if you're in a, like a working men's football, rugby or like laddie place and they're like, oh, what am I? You know what I mean? Or they say, boy, what's that? Could you say a bit closer, please? I'm not daft. Or if you're going in, I don't know, a church gig, or if you're doing a sort of kid yeah. for children, or if you're doing a cabaret gig, or if you're doing a, like, yeah. a, like a gig like Angel, or like um, the Comedy Store, how would you play those different rooms and adjust yourself to? Okay, so that's a lot of scenarios. Uh, let's start <laughs> with the easy one, Angel Comedy. Uh, Angel Comedy, one of the loveliest rooms to play uh, at the Bill Murray or at Camden Head. Um, I mean, you're not likely to get heckled there because the compares do such a great job setting up the room for a nice friendly gig. The only problem I ever, ever had with Angel is that they're so strict on time that you know that if you're trying new material and you're starting with old stuff to kind of get them on board and then the new stuff. So it's just about timing. Um, but the audiences are a delight. So uh, and they love comedy, so you don't patronise them. You just give them your jokes, and and they will they'll be on board with everything. Um, working men's club, that's, so from one extreme to the other there, because you've got really supportive to working men's club. Um, most people who go to comedy are there because they want to be at comedy. There are some rooms with and working men's clubs are one of them where it's a social and it happens to be that comedy is the social activity that night so you may well be interrupting their conversations because they want to hang out with their mates and drink and chat um so you'll do your set you'll tr you'll engage if you have to if you don't have to engage like people are just chatting to in in their groups and it's not disturbing you and it's not disturbing anyone else just do your stuff and in entertain the people that want to be entertained. Um, if someone does heckle you like you were just doing, oh, oh that might be. I normally play the posh card and because I sound quite posh and I might make a joke about someone like, oh, well, does he come with subtitles? I, I'm not quite sure what he <laughs> said. Um, something like that, because it, it then, it gives them a bit of attention, but doesn't give them all of the attention. And actually, actually often I can't understand what they're saying and it stops me getting into trouble by trying to guess what they've been saying. Um, it also gives me a few moments extra to think of a comeback. Like if, I, if they're gonna repeat what they have to say, I've got a bit, a bit more time for my brain to tick over 
So I can go, uh, okay, I'm going to say this. Uh, somewhere like Top Secret, Comedy Store, places like that where, yes, they're all comedy fans, but they're also a bit drunk and a bit heckly or chatty. And, and the stakes are higher as well because it's Top Secret or the Comedy Store. So you need to not fuck up. Um, again, I'll try and take some time. I'll, I might do a few kind of knowing looks to the audience, uh, which won't translate onto the podcast at all if I show you. But that kind of thing of almost as if you're saying to the audience, is this guy for real? Is this, is this happening? Have I, have I just, this is, oh, this is happening. All right, well, I've, I've got it. And whilst you're doing that, again, your brain is thinking how you can come back. And normally it's a really cheap comeback you might have that maybe if it's a, a group of blokes, you, you can make references to manhood or if it's a, a group of women, you can make references to the, the fact that uh, you know, they're, they're letting the sisterhood down or something. I, I don't know, you, you'd think of something in the moment trying very hard to make sure it doesn't alienate the audience. Because hecklers sometimes are hated by the rest of the audience, but sometimes they are friends of everyone in the audience. And if you go in too hard, then the audience is going to hate you more than they hate the heckler. Mm. So that's involved. I've seen that happen where there was one guy who was heckling throughout the whole show. He was, he was just chatting to his friend and every so often would chip in with some kind of, oh, it wasn't funny. Or what, what, why are you talking about that? And one of the acts went on, he was only doing about seven minutes, and one of the acts went on and within the first minute called him a cunt. Now you might want to beep that word out, I don't know. But he did that. And the audience hated this heckler. They'd hated the heckler throughout the whole show, but as much of a cunt as that guy was being, he was their friend, and we as comedians didn't get to call him that. We hadn't earned the right to be that pissed off that we were able to call their friend a cunt. Mm. And so then the audience turned on this comedian who died for the next five minutes. <laughs> because they were like, you don't, you don't come here. This is our social club. You don't, you don't come here and start being rude to our mate. We know he's a dickhead, but he's our dickhead. So read the room, guys. <laughs> But when you're sort of, so, <laughs> that would that must have been quite a scene. Well, I mean, the, whoever the comedian was, I mean, he may get some material out of it. Because often I find when there's a weird thing at a gig or a weird thing happening, comedians often bring it to stage. <laughs> they do, but I, I don't know what I don't know how well that lasts in the real world. Really, like you often hear comedians say. Uh, oh, I told that joke at a gig last week and someone said this. And first of all, that's never always true. Uh, sometimes it, it's a joke that they've made up on top of the joke they'd originally made up. Um, but other, sometimes audiences don't care what other audiences think. So if, because then they feel like they're in competition with other audiences. So if, if you were to say, um, uh, if you were to ask a, question to an audience and they give you an answer and you go oh I'm glad you said that because last week someone else said this now that person's thinking oh maybe my joke wasn't my response wasn't funny enough my... mm. so I, I try 
I try where I can, if I'm talking to the audience, to be as fresh as I can. I stay in the moment. I might reuse a, a comeback if, if someone says something that previous audiences said. I might reuse a comeback because it's, a, it's a, an off-the-cuff response. <coughs> but just re read the room and, and play each gig as, as its own entity. No, no, no two gigs are the same, effectively. Yeah. And when, <clears throat> so when you're doing a place like Top Secret or the Comedy Store, I hear that in a Comedy Store, they're a bit against sort of crowd work and they like it to be very sort of short and sharp and they're quite strict on time, I hear. Like, is that, yeah. is that true? Yeah, ti timings, because they do two shows, the timings are really, really tight. So you might have someone who's opening the comedy store, then running off to do another gig, then coming back to do the late show at the comedy store. <clears throat> and if you mess up the timings, then even a minute, half a minute is too much. And if you do too short, that can also mess up timings because oh. if a comedian is, um, if a comedian's coming back from another gig, and they know they're going to be on stage at 11 o'clock, but actually you're done. So they're, they're ready for that person to be on stage at five to 11. Then you've not done your, your time. Place like top secret. Also, why do you want to leave the stage early? I mean, these, these are amazing clubs. You want to do your stuff. You want to do the best you can crowd work. You just have to be really good at it. What they don't want is for you to do crowd work where the crowd is funnier than you. And people that go to comedy, and I mean properly go to comedy, like comedy store audiences, top secret audiences, people that go to comedy can be funnier than the comedian. So if I ever get heckled by somebody and it's funnier than what I've just said, I would admit defeat and I will give them that moment of enjoyment that they have won. I'll shake a hand if I'm... Yeah, if I'm close enough, I'll shake a hand or high five, whatever. There's nothing worse than a comedian trying to be funnier than a heckler who's just destroyed them. Let them have that moment. And in the comedy store and in Top Secret, if, a, if a, an audience member is funnier than you, then they might end up being booked for next week. But don't try and... <laughs> beat them because they'll beat you again and if, if you lose twice that's it you know what's the point you're, you're nothing if if a, if a heckler beats you just own it and the audience will respect you more for it i i've definitely had moments i compare um covent garden comedy fair amount and backyard i do quite a bit as well two i'd say two of my favorites to do covent garden is one of the best clubs to compare for sure and loads of times there, you ask an audience member a question and they come back with such a great answer that to try and top that would be pointless because the audience have enjoyed their answer so much. So let them have it. When you're emceeing like a smaller club and like in a sort of a basement room or whatever and it's like 60 odd people, People can hear what they say, and it's easier to have easier to have those funny moments. But when you're doing like a room like Covent Garden Comedy Club, how do you translate that into a bigger audience? Because they can't hear what that person said. 
So the key to being an MC is making sure everyone's heard everything. So if you ask, let's say you ask someone in the front row, what, what's your name and what do you do? Which is a horrible thing for a compare to do, but we do it. <laughs> um, you've got to repeat the answer so the audience can hear it. So if you're talking to Clive, who's a builder, you've got to, once Clive has answered, you've got to then say, oh, Clive, a builder, brilliant. So, uh, and then you ask your follow-up question. You've just got to make sure everyone here, even in a smaller room, you would do that. There's no point assuming that everyone has the same level of hearing. Your job is to include everybody. And in the bigger rooms, if you focus just on the front row, then people at the back are going to feel alienated and not part of the show. So by talking to everybody and sharing the information you've just picked up, um, it brings people much more back into the conversation. And with so one question on the point towards you with, if there's a comedian now listening to the podcast and they're like on London circuit or any sort of circuit in the UK, and they're struggling to regress to like to be where you are now. What 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 is your day to day routine when you were a pro comedian? Like how hard did you have to work to get to where you are? Like the daily routine, and how does they how do they get in with these good clubs? What's the right way to go about doing it? Okay, um, I mean it's all changed now. So who who knows whether my answers will be relevant? anymore because the entire industry has changed but let me let me take kind of take you through my routines i guess before lockdown um the thing i loved about my life and career is that i never knew what my days were going to look like until the end of the day because you get a last minute phone call offering you something or an audition for something or um so every week is different the routine I have in my life is that I have children, therefore I do the school run in the morning. So I take the kids to school. Uh, I would normally then have gone to the gym or something just to work out a bit of tension and frustration to start my day. Um, I'll then go and set up in my office where I would do a combination of admin, writing, applying for gigs, invoicing for gigs, chasing invoices for gigs. Um, so there's a lot of admin, especially not having an agent, there's a lot of admin that you have to do to get the gigs, but you then also have to keep writing. So you're thinking about jokes you want to write, thinking about if it's topical stuff, you're reading the news, seeing what jokes um, you want to come up with. Um, the applying for gigs is just about responding to Facebook posts or emails that come in with people asking you to apply, um, doing the admin with festival stuff. So applying for festivals, doing the promo stuff. Um, the writing is a huge part of it. And then a couple of nights a week, you want to be doing new material nights. So open mic gigs where they'll let you do new material as a more established comedian or pro new material nights where everyone there is doing new. Um, and for that, you need to be developing material the whole time. It could be stuff you've done previously that you're, you're building on. It doesn't all have to be brand new. And I think a lot of newer comedians make the mistake of thinking, well, I got a 
laugh on that. So that's ready. I'll bank that and I'll move on and write something new. But actually jokes are developing all the time. So you should constantly be thinking about how you can improve a joke and make it yours. Um, I then have to pick up the kids from school, help, you know, around the house, do dinner, do tidying, sorting things out. Um, since lockdown started, that routine has changed dramatically because I have been homeschooling as well. So I had to become a teacher, which meant I had to kind of learn what I needed to do. Um, I had to entertain my children, which involved a lot of Disney Plus. Um, I also had to think about ways to actually make myself viable as a comedian still. And I know the government's telling us we're not viable anymore, but they are wrong. Um, so I created a podcast and I created a children's comedy show, which meant I was having to do some filming, some recording, some writing, some admin with that to get things going. I've now brought out a, a joke book, um, which meant I had to put that together. I now have to do the promo for that or the PR for it. Facebook advertising, all, all of that stuff. Plus, when the book arrives next week, or this week, actually, Monday, when the, the book arrives, I'll have to start packaging them into envelopes and get them down to the post office to send out to the people that already bought them. So my life is, a, uh, it's not a routine. It's never been a routine. I, I go to bed <clears throat> at stupid o'clock and I have to wake up at stupid o'clock because I've got young kids that don't appreciate lions. Um, so I'll often be working late into the night, writing or developing projects I'm doing. I try very hard during lockdown to engage with other comedians. So I'm part of a, a Zoom writing group that gets together once a week. And other comedians, instead of just WhatsApping, try and speak to them on the phone or FaceTiming so that you can actually see and engage with people. Doing other people's podcasts, partly to promote things like the joke book and partly because actually you want to talk to people and you want to take part in uh, game shows that they're doing or chats that they're having. So it's, there's no routine. If you want to become a full-time stand-up comedian, you just have to be so flexible and so open to change. I don't think I've ever really done well with Right, at nine o'clock I'll do this, at 10 o'clock I'll do that, at 12 o'clock I'll do that, because that's just not how my brain works. Some comedians use a writing technique, I think it's called the Pomodoro or Paloma. I, you might need to look that one up. It's, it, there's, there's a writing technique that has a name which is very specific of, you, I think it's you write for 25 minutes, you break for five minutes, you write for 25 minutes, you break, and some people find that very, very um, successful. I really want to know what it's called now. It, it's, to um, it's, uh, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to. It is. Was, what, the Pomodoro technique. Pomodoro. Okay. So I, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's brilliant. I've not managed to make it work for me just because there's so much going on with the childcare. And I'm not meant to call it childcare with my own children, but with childcare, with sustaining a relationship, sustaining a household, 
doing podcasts, doing the children's book. I don't have that routine generally. Um, but you have to stay flexible. You have to keep writing. You've got to keep networking. The thing I say to any new comedian who says the secret to anyone's success on the circuit is just don't be a dick. This is a very small industry. We all know each other. Everyone talks. <clears throat> just network and be nice with people. Just chat. Just support. Offer advice. If, if, someone, if someone has a joke that you think can be improved, then offer, offer that for, you know, free of charge. Just help them out. Don't nick their jokes. Don't plagiarize. Don't steal material. Don't, you'll get caught. Um, if you're still plugging away after 10 years and you haven't progressed beyond the open mic circuit, then maybe that's where you're going to stay as well. I don't want to sound really harsh, but people do find the comedians they want to book for paid gigs. And if you're not being booked for those gigs, then there's a reason. And it might be that you're not nice to work with, or it might be that you're not funny. One or the other. <laughs> and there, and there may be lots of other reasons that, you know, I, there are loads of gigs, by the way, I don't get booked for. I don't want anyone thinking I'm putting myself out there as some kind of guru of everything. Loads of gigs out there that I can't get. And sometimes it's because they don't think I'm funny or sometimes it's because they don't want another white middle-class male on the lineup. <coughs> Maybe there are some that don't book me because I'm Jewish. I don't know. I've never had that directly, but there are loads of reasons we don't get booked for comedy. But if you're still after 10 years or five years or whatever, if, if, if you are thinking about doing comedy for a career and you're still not progressing to paid work after a significant amount of time, then maybe that's not your journey. And what do you make of someone like Eddie Izzard? Who? I think he's all right. He's got a good future ahead of him. He's, yeah. <laughs> but he, um, he also took a while before he progressed anyway. I think everyone does. This is the thing. Um, I always remember uh, years ago, Samantha Spiro, fantastic actress. She won the Best Newcomer at the Comedy Awards. And in her speech, she says something like, best newcomer, I've been doing this for 10 years. And I think that is really pertinent. Nobody is an overnight success in this industry. You can't be because you have to have built up some kind of sustainability. You might make it in a year, you might make it in 10 years, but nobody does their first gig and then goes on Live with the Apollo. So no. someone like Eddie Izzard, who works ridiculously hard I, I saw him at they did uh, at the bill murray angel comedy had him doing nights and nights of his work ex, not work experience <laughs> work in progress um and i saw i saw one of them and it was brilliant even as a work in progress you could see where the nuggets of brilliance were going to come from it was so good he works hard i don't know what his daily routine is but he is someone who, that, who gigs in multiple languages, has a very hard working, he's a fantastic actor as well. So he's performs on stage and uh, screen as an actor, not just as a comedian, same way Billy Connolly did. 
Um, you know, he is, he's excellent at what he does, but that doesn't happen unless you put the work in. But they, what, 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 the rumours about him saying it took 10 years, like he was called Rubbish Eddie, what was, and then he did street performing. I watched like the podcast with him and Joe Rogan, and it's a bit grey area when he talks about like how long it took for him to get anywhere in like his street performing days. I I don't actually know much about that, um, but I I can tell you that street the street performers I know that have gone from that onto stand up tend to be some of the most confident and brilliant comedians because they know how to engage with the crowd, especially doing bucket speeches in Edinburgh. They know how to do that uh, brilliantly. But you look at people like Stu Goldsmith, uh, Pete Dobbing, people who are just really good comedians, really strong comedians. And then you realize they've got a background in street performance as well. <clears throat> um, and it's another art form. It's, I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't stand on the street uh, doing the entertaining they do and then translate that into stand up at a club. So huge respect for people like that. It's incredible. And one thing that I found quite interesting is because you have a few circuit legends in the UK scene that have been going for over 10 years, but they said that in New York, they'll be quite well respected. They'll be treated differently than they are in the UK scene. Who are you thinking of? I, I don't want to mention names because it's not going to be <laughs> right. I, I think in in America, there is much more of a sense that until you die, you could still make it on TV. Whereas in the UK, I think sometimes we are a bit more realistic and we say, do you know what? This is where I am. This is, I'm a, I'm a great circuit comic. I'm not going to be on Mock the Week. I'm not going to be on Live with the Apollo and I can make a living doing what I'm doing. And I think I'm kind of potentially in that bracket. Like I might, there's still a chance. I work on Mock the Week uh, as part of the production team. So there's still a chance I could find my way onto the panel one week. But realistically, I've been doing stand-up for about 10 years, five years full-time. I think if I was going to be snapped up by an agent and put on those types of shows, I probably would have had that already. Agents know what they're looking for. And again, white middle-class male, I think, there's enough of me out there. It's not, it's not my voice that needs to be heard in the same, uh, in the same way that it would have been celebrated 20 years ago. Now I'm just another comedian on the circuit. And once you get to know that, once you realize that you can just be good at what you do and you make a living doing that. And that's great. And if you do get picked up for the odd bit of telly here and there, fantastic. But if not, you're That's happy. what the live circuit's for. You're happy. Mostly. Yeah, mostly. I'm not going to lie. I look at some of the new people who are getting TV breaks quicker than I have, and I think, That's a bit fun. But often they aren't sustainable. I've spoken to quite a few producers who've looked at some of the new things that have been on TV lately with lockdown and you know some of the showcase shows or uh, platforms forms that they put out to highlight new comedians and actually they're not sustainable they've got a solid five minutes but can they do 20 at the comedy store on a friday night 
No, not necessarily. Not all of them, no. But it's, no. It, Some can. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, his style is bloody amazing. And like Joe Hobbs, you mentioned, is amazing. And like Hugh, Hugh why is this, I don't know why he calls himself this, but Hugh Davies. <laughs> that is quite a funny Hugh, Hugh Davies. <laughs> Hugh Davies is, he's brilliant. And I'll tell you why he's brilliant. Not only is he a good comedian, like he's got something. And I, it, he got picked up very quickly, um, I think by CKP, who are now Blue Book. Yeah. Um, but he's but he's brilliant and he's also one of the loveliest guys when he did his debut in edinburgh he i think it was at the pleasance i think it was a pleasance debut he did and he gave a booklet to his entire audience every single day that listed every other debut that was happening around edinburgh so all the people that weren't getting the same publicity he was getting by being at the pleasance he was giving free publicity to by saying to his audience, these are some other people that you should go and see. Now to do that is one of the nicest gestures. Yeah, he is a good guy who deserves everything he gets, not only because he's talented and funny and creative, but because he appreciates his place on the circuit and other people's. And there are some people who just aren't going to make it onto telly but are still brilliant comedians and for someone like him to look at those people and say do you know what let me give them a helping hand is brilliant huge respect yeah and it's funny when you go on that as well because i find it amazing that's like in america and in the uk you have these comedians that aren't necessarily so like daniel kitson and jerry sadowitz mm. they don't really go on tv much but like Boom! Whenever they're advertising something, or and it's flocked to them, like like flies around shit. So, but. yeah, but that's because they they are classic examples of people who found their audience because their audience found them. They they didn't go and try and make everyone love them like I'm doing. They said, "This is the type of comedy I want to do. This is what I find funny, and the audience I want." are people that find it funny as well. Because then I don't have to compromise who I am. I can be the type of funny that I want to be and they'll find me. And Daniel Kitson, I don't think you can find any of his stuff online. If you Google him, I don't think any of his videos exist online. If you want to see him, you have to go and see him. It's, it's, it's sort of a similar story with Doug Stanhope as well, isn't it? Like he, how did he build it up? Like he just, they signed up an email on his mail list and boom, boom, boom. And then now he's got this. That's incredible. I've seen someone, I can't remember who it is, but I've seen somebody who, when he, when he advertises his Edinburgh show, he interviews people in the street. And if they are worthy of it, he gives them a flyer to his show. So the only people that come to his show are people that he has handpicked. They still have to buy a ticket, but he has said, after a conversation with them, you're my kind of crowd, here's a flyer for my show. As opposed to what most of us do, which is stand on the street going, free comedy, do you want to see a comedy show? Award-winning comedy, come see the... That, I mean, that is really impressive. I wish I could remember who it was. 
<laughs> it's a terrible anecdote to tell, seeing as I can't remember who. It's just like in a movie sometimes, you have characters like, I mean, your, your kids probably know this, Loki, he's a very loved character. Yeah. And like, you, you have a lot of in characters in films or like people in, that you see on TV and then they, they don't, they carry this sort of persona of not caring if people like him and they're just themselves and they have sort of people flock towards them. And how, what, what would you say is the balance between trying to get people to like you but also not compensating for who you are? Um, I think you have to be able to sleep at night and you need to do what makes you happy. Because if you try so hard to make everyone else happy, ultimately you're going to be miserable because you'll, have, you'll either have to work so hard to maintain the level of comedy that an audience that has bought into you wants, or you do what's right for you. And if you do what's right for you, you'll sleep much better at night. The balance has to be, if you're just doing what's right for you and nobody's coming to see you, then it's not working. <laughs> uh, like an Edinburgh show, some man's got no audience coming in. It's like, oh, give a shit, I'm gonna swear it, come to my show. But he's still getting no audience. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I did an Edinburgh show a couple of years ago. It was a work in progress. Um, and I had two people in one audience. It was the best I'd it was the best one I'd had because I'd spoken to them whilst flyering. They, they were really engaged in it. Uh, and it was, it was lovely. They laughed at everything. They really engaged with the entire show and it was brilliant. The next day I had a full room, which for Edinburgh is only about 50 people, but it was a full room and it was hard work because they, they laughed, they got the jokes, they enjoyed the show. They appreciated the, uh, emotional, touches I was putting into the show as well but the difference between trying to make 50 people laugh who were sort of okay with watching the show or two people laugh who were totally on board with the entire show was massive so don't worry about numbers that are coming to see your show it's about the engagement it's like if you've got a mailing list if you've got a mailing list of five people but they engage with everything you do, or if you've got a mailing list of 500 people and only 1% engage with, with what you do, then that is a waste of the, the other 99%. What a waste of energy trying to please them. Yeah. And it's, what, that's quite funny. Because, <clears throat> But that also goes into sort of, yeah, what, what would you say in terms of, because relationships in comedy are, as you say, a big thing in it, but how do you do it? You say you've got to sleep at night, but in some instances to navigate comedy, people say like you should always be yourself. Yes, you should, like you, there's a center core of it, but I feel in certain situations, if you're too much too, if you act in a certain, like you can't be completely yourself. Like if you're too open with, with certain individuals, then, you're going to put yourself in a lot of trouble. So to an extent that is true, but you've got to add different sort of things to survive, I feel. Well, you, you have to be yourself as a starting point. Yeah. Like you are a persona on stage 
<clears throat> even if you're not a character comedian, you're a persona on stage. And when we talk about your, your comedy voice, that horrible wanky thing of finding your comedy voice, it's about who you are on stage. All the comedy I do is based on truth. I talk about dating, I talk about being married, I talk about having children. Every single bit of it is based on truth. I talk about the negative side of having children. I don't enjoy being a parent in the same way as I was expecting to, perhaps. And I talk about um, the fact that we had children pre-getting married and that it was a surprise and things like that. I can play that persona on stage because I know that actually I'm very close with my family. I love my children. I am very engaged with what they do. I'm a big part that I would rush home from my the day job that I had before giving that up in order to do bath and bedtime when I can pre-lockdown. Obviously, if I was away gigging, I would be FaceTiming them constantly so that, you know, I was part of their lives. It's, but on stage, I play this reluctant dad kind of character this persona because that the kernel of truth the starting point is actually i find being a dad really fucking hard so rather than turn every show turn every five minute 10 minute 20 minute set into an edinburgh show where i'm trying to tear my heart out and make the audience cry i turn it into comedy and i make it funny and talk about some of the funnier aspects of the misery of being a parent. I'm not the only one to do it. It's a very common thing that dads especially, I guess, do when they become dads. Um, you have to be true to yourself to that in that respect, but you're playing a persona on stage. If I was at home as miserable as I appear to be on stage, I'd never get out of bed. <laughs> Oof. Um, <clears throat> no, that's, that's been awesome. And also, there's another question because I did look. So you got quite sort of a like two questions on us. So how much do you, would you say comedy competitions help? And like mm -hmm. uh, important comedy, and how has sort of running outside of gigs helped you as a comedian? And what are some of the challenges of both running gigs and being a comedian? Okay. So competitions are, I would say, one of the worst and best parts of comedy because they look great on the CV. And if you're applying for gigs or if a promoter wants to be able to have one tag to say about you, to be able to put you as a competition winner is great. Um, Part of the problem is there are too many competitions now and anyone can start up a competition and it, it sort of waters down the importance of the bigger competitions then. Like if you win the BBC competition, amazing. If you win local comedian of the year, I, I don't want to be disrespectful to anyone's locality, but if you, you know, like some crappy village who's done their, their own Britain's Got Talent style competition and you win that, then no one really cares but having those kinds of competition wins are seen as looking good on the cv they're the worst thing because it turns you against your your colleagues your peers and you could be at a gig with people you're friends with and all of a sudden you're competing for a title that doesn't matter so i i've won a couple of competitions uh, i won the jewish comedian of the year in 2015 and i won the um 
last minute comedy competition of the year or comedian of the year, both, both in 2015. If I mention the Jewish comedian of the year to people, they're impressed and that's, that goes on my CV quite a lot. The last minute comedy competition, which I'm really proud of, most people haven't heard of. So they don't really know where to put it. All it meant was I spent four or five heats losing friends because suddenly we were competing against each other and comedy shouldn't be a competition. When you're at a gig, you should be working together to make the audience laugh. That's your job as comedians. If you're competing against each other, I don't want to be standing backstage watching my friend smashing a gig, but being upset that they're doing better than me. Oh yeah. You know, we're friends. I don't want to be at a gong show wishing somebody was getting gonged off because I want to do better than them. I want to be enjoying them. I want to be working with them. I did, um, I did the pun championship uh, this year in February. One of the last gigs before lockdown was the UK pun championship. Uh, and I came second. Um, it was a very close final between me and Adele Cliff, who won. And... She and I are good friends. We lived together in Edinburgh for a couple of years. We're good friends. And suddenly we're competing against each other in a relatively high stakes competition. Now, how, how horrible is that? To completely change the dynamic of a friendship. So that competitions, you might wanna edit that down to something less wanky. <laughs> um, I, think, I think you asked about running gigs, is that? Yeah, how has that helped you as a comedian and what is the challenge of that? Because I, I remember listening to one podcast with um, Simon Kane and let's not go into dodgy details on him, but I meant like he did one with, um, who's the, the lady who does the comedy course that Jimmy Carr did? And she says that if you want to get people to like, dislike you, you want a comedy gig. So like, yeah. Um. Yeah, um, so I, I, I run a few gigs. Um, I, run an, I run the Boreham Comedy Club, which is near where I live, um, which is a, a um, it's, it runs every couple of months. Obviously we've not done any this year because of lockdown. Um, it's a pro night, so everyone on the bill gets paid a pro wage because I'm an equity member. I'm part of the Equity Comedians Network. And I think if you, if you are charging an audience to entertain, then you pay your acts and you pay every act. I don't do open spots for no money. You pay everybody. Um, if I did an open spot as a trial spot, I would even pay their expenses at least. Because I, as I said, I think <clears throat> if someone's making money, everyone should be making money. Um, the best things about um, having a running a club, the best things about running a club is that you can compare it and you get the stage time as a compare. The worst things about it is no one likes you anymore because you are only somebody who could book them for your club. You are no longer a friend. Um, they immediately want to know when they can do your night. They don't understand that maybe they're not right for your room. Um, I run quite a lot of school PTA gigs as well. 
and charity nights where they're not the same as comedy clubs. They don't want people telling knob gags. They don't want necessarily uh, the kind of clubs, jokes that would work as part of a regular comedy night. And they're much harder to curate. So you're trying to put them together. Maybe you need to find a celebrity, a TV name for a headline act, and maybe your budget isn't very big in order to do that. Or perhaps your budget is big enough for the, the headliner, but then you've got to compromise what you pay everybody else. Um, I like to think of myself as a good promoter in that I pay my acts normally in cash on the night or by backs on the day or the day after. No one's waiting for money. That is something that can make a difference. If you're, if you're running a gig, if you delay payment, there's no need for you to delay payment. You'll tell people there is, but there's not. There's never a need for you to delay payment um, because you, you should have the proper contracts and everything in place with yeah. the other with, with the venue, for instance, so that you get paid on time, so your acts get paid on time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so it's great for it's great for networking as well because if you book other people, they might book you for their gigs. But that's not the reason to run a gig. No. If you're running a gig, it's because you want to compare, <clears throat> or you want to bring entertainment to your local, your local town. The PTA gigs that I do are nice because I travel so much for comedy. It means I get to gig locally so I don't have to always be away from home I can have a Friday or a Saturday night within 20 minutes of my house rather than having to stay overnight in the middle of nowhere because I've had to drive five hours to get to a gig yeah one of the biggest things that goes on in comedy I think is there's not enough the, one of the things is People say as you get older, you see the other side. But I think that's not true in both cases. I think from a lot of comedians, a lot of performers and a lot of things, we, we don't see the other person's side that well at all. And I feel mm. from my side, I'll be straight and honest. When I've been running the gigs, I have rubbed people off the wrong way. But I think the reason for it is because both of us don't look at the other side well enough. We don't see what's going on and that's why it's happened. And then sometimes when you try and have an honest conversation that people get a bit nervous and then they're not comfortable doing that to try and try and sort things out because you have to be honest and have an open conversation to sort things out. But that doesn't happen enough in the world. We don't. Yeah, I think, I think people are stuck in their own worlds and, you know, this person that had to cancel because they were in a different country was clearly just caught up in their own world and she didn't have the decency to kind of message me earlier but it, i imagine she wasn't sat there going i need to message philip i'm not going to i'll wait i'll wait i won't message him yet i'll wait a bit long it just she was caught up with life and you know as pissed off as i was at the time there was no malice to it it was just stupidity on her part the main stupid thing is i now can't book her again because I can't trust that that won't happen again. So you're, if you're wanting to be a professional comedian, and this goes back to what we were saying before about not being a dick and so, you know, don't let people down. Don't make promises you can't keep. Don't tell people you've got 10 minutes if you've only got a five minute set. Don't agree to do a gig. You know, I've had loads of people message me about gigs. So if I post them on Facebook and they say, uh, oh, I, I really want to do that gig in I don't know, um, random. I wanted that gig in Watford. By the way, where's Watford? 
I had that once. That was, don't, don't tell me you're free and available to do a gig if you're not even sure you know where the gig is. Because what if you can't get to Watford? Yeah. No. Yeah. It, like, you need to do your part. And as a professional comedian, even if you're an amateur because you've got a day job, but you're applying for paid work, you know, as far as equity is concerned, as soon as you're earning over a certain amount of money, total, you're a professional who could join equity and get the benefits of a union. So start treating yourself like a professional. Do the research. Can I do this gig? If it's a double up, can I, do I have time to get from A to B without upsetting either promoter? Yeah. It'd be a bit funny if he was in Scotland and he asked that. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, there's, there's, you must know Jeff Whiting, fantastic uh, yeah. promoter on the circuit, one of the champions of our industry in terms of the work that we do. Um, he runs a gig in Farringdon. Now, most people, if they hear Farringdon, will hear Farringdon, London. And they'll go, yeah, I could do that. I could be there 15 minutes after work. But actually, Farringdon is out well, I think it's past Oxford, Swindon sort of way. So it's a good couple of hours drive. Mm. Now, if you apply for that gig and he offers you that gig and then on the day of that gig, he sends the address and you're like, oh, what? I can't do that. I can't get to it. Why would he think to book you again? Yeah, that's true. Because <laughs> you're going to do the same thing. So you've got to... you, Yeah. And you've got to take some responsibility for yourself as a comedian. Hmm. Okay. And, and what, what can promoters do from the other side to improve their relationship with comedians without rubbing them up the wrong way? Because you're on both sides and that maybe you and Robin Perkins can see things from both sides of the argument. Yeah. So I, th I think uh, the main thing promoters need to start doing is also treating this like a profession. And I'm not talking about the bigger promoters, obviously. I'm talking about people often at my level who are like, oh, I'll just run a gig in my local pub or I'll do a PTA gig or whatever. So pay a fair wage. Everyone gets paid. No open spots. Everyone gets paid. Even if it's a tenner towards expenses, just nobody should be working for free. Uh, pay everyone on time and quickly. Um, make a safe space. So the LCA and Equity are working really hard to do this. Make a safe space so there's no, no one is in danger of harassment or um, sexism or racism or uh, homophobia, transphobia, anything like that. You have to create a safe space for your workers. We don't have an HR department, but let's behave like we do. Pay cancellation fees if your gig gets cancelled. And coronavirus, it's, it's a trickier time for that because we're, we have to be a bit more understanding. But if you haven't sold enough tickets because you haven't done your job promoting, so you cancel a gig, pay a cancellation fee because I need to pay my mortgage and I need to feed my family and I can't do that. If I've agreed to do your gig and then you've cancelled the gig on the day, you know, pay a cancellation fee. And if you, do, if you don't want to pay a cancellation fee, you know, every venue that I work with, I have a contract and it includes a cancellation fee. So if they cancel within two weeks of the gig, they are liable for a percentage of the money. 
and that money goes to my ACTS. I don't keep that money. I pay the ACTS a cancellation fee. So okay. look after your ACTS, treat them as professionals, treat them with respect because then your audience will keep coming back because the, the ACTS will be good. The ACTS will be, they won't mess around on stage. They won't do anything that uh, makes you look bad and your audience will appreciate it in the long run. Yeah. And by, but by doing that, you've got to also curate your gig by picking the right people. As you said, like you've got to say, they've got to be responsible yeah. and you've got to veto the gig because like, if, there's, if there's rubbish going on between two comedians on the bill, if they don't like each other, it could create a toxic atmosphere behind the scenes. If there's a real big issue, yeah, and then also, it'll affect the rest of you and it'll affect everyone else's night. Yeah, you, you've got to do that. And you've also got to um, look after the venue. And if a venue is not right, don't run a gig there. Don't, don't, if a venue approaches you and says, I want to run a gig, and you look at that venue and you kind of go, well, there's no way comedy is going to work in this room. Don't do it. Even if it's a casino where other people are playing blackjack and poker, don't do it. It's not a room for comedy. If it's not playable on paper, don't, don't do it. Don't just say yes because you think someone else will take it from you. A good promoter will know when to say no to a venue. They'll know which acts to book. They'll know what audience to put in the room. If people are disruptive and heckling, kick them out. Some venues have bonds. If you have a bigger party than six, they might have a bond where you've had to put a deposit down. And if you get kicked out, you lose that deposit. Places like Hot Water in Liverpool are fantastic in the way they, they have a zero tolerance policy for heckling. Brilliant. They, they've curated one of the best comedy clubs because they've looked out for their acts by making sure that the venue is right, the audiences are right, and they pay their acts a decent wage. Mm. Oh, yeah, they're very good. I mean, they're very modern. Probably maybe the most advanced club yeah. in the UK, especially the YouTube and their online presence. I've not seen any club get anywhere near to what they're doing. No, it's fantastic. Really fantastic. And, like, and they worked hard for it. Yeah, and Adam Rowe and what's it called? Paul Smith. They've, Paul Smith. They're, they're, yeah. they're all comfortable now because of them. Like they've really helped sort of yeah. reach the stratosphere. Ah, that goes into a funny point as well. Like Paul Smith, he might not necessarily get on TV, but he's got his own base already. So, well, that's it. I mean, he, he has sold out the Apollo without a TV presence. You know, yeah. most TV producers probably won't know who he is, and they're idiots for that because he's brilliant. And what's it called? That, that Nigel Un with his bloody Uncle Roger. I mean, he has been on TV. Yeah, Nigel's brilliant. He's, he's been on Mock the Week a few times. He's done a b bits of TV. Um, but interestingly, he, I don't think he's known as Uncle Roger when he's Nigel, and he's not known as Nigel when he's... So I watch his Uncle Roger stuff, and it's not that people are going, oh, this character's brilliant. I think loads of people think Uncle Roger is an actual character, an, an actual person, whereas it's obviously Nigel's fantastic creation. Um, his stand-up, Nigel's one of those people, his stand-up is brilliant and his character work with Uncle Roger is brilliant. He, and, and he's lovely backstage. I mean, what a horrible person. Uh, he's, he's brilliant. Um, 
Uh, no, can't can't fault him. You know what what a lovely lovely guy, and so deserved with the attention he's getting. But when he's on mock the week, they don't introduce him as. Uh, now next up is uh, Uncle Roger from TikTok or from Instagram, YouTube. He's just Nigel Ung, the brilliant stand-up. Yeah, that's <laughs> no, it's good. It's a, and it's remarkable seeing what people are doing during these difficult times, and it's it's to be admired. Well, that, that's why. Oh, for sure, and, and that's why we're so lucky to be in lockdown when we are. You know, if, we, if this was. 10, 20 years ago, we wouldn't have had the technology, but now everyone has the ability to do um, podcasts, to do um, YouTube shows, to do TikTok videos, to, to do whatever they want. There's really, it, the hard thing is it, it's difficult to make money out of it. So I, I do a podcast that makes no money. It's called Jew Talking To Me. It's a Jewish uh, chat show. We have Jewish guests and we talk about life, about being Jewish and it's, it makes no money, but it's a great project. I, we edit it, we produce it, we write the scripts. Um, I do the school, Schools Out Comedy Club, the videos for the kids that makes no money. Uh, the joke book that I'm selling is raising money for charity, for fair share, so feed hungry children. Um, the only money I make from, the, from Schools Out Comedy is when I do some live gigs for cubs and brownies and scouts and things like that um where they they pay me a, a a gig fee to do that but really it's about staying engaged and active and using the technology that we have if it was so successful like uncle roger where it went viral and i had a million followers on youtube then i'd be able to mon monetize it in a very different way nigel i imagine when he started out doing that he just wanted an outlet for his creativity I, I doubt he, when he first created that, I doubt he, he envisaged it would explode in the way it has. And that is part of the success, that he was just doing something that was, that was funny, that was clever, and he's brilliant. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, that's, yeah, it just goes to show, just make, make use of what you have and just enjoy it. And like, don't expect the big mm. things right away. Just work on little things first and you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, so I've got, I've got three more questions to ask you. Um, okay. Sound like a sergeant there, the way I phrased it. It's <laughs> boom, boom, yeah, boom. I'm being nervous about to, I'm about to incriminate myself for something. <laughs> So the three questions I'd like to ask is who is your hero in life? Like, and why are they your hero? Uh, and what is a okay. quote you like to live the rest of your life by? So a hero, like a comedy hero or a hero in general? So, no, just a life hero. Like someone, no. you want to be, you love comedy and you want to be a, like yep. you're happy making a living for it but who actually let's do both who who epitomizes the type yeah. of comedian you want to be and you admire and who epitomizes the type of person you want to be and admire okay so i wish i hadn't asked you to clarify that because i don't have a clue who my <laughs> comedy hero would be um <laughs> I, I have comedians that i love and and their careers that i 
aspire to and I love, and it's people like the old school of Bob Monkhouse, um, people like that who were just pure joke tellers, you know, and then people like Lee Mack and Frank Skinner, the people who are just really clever, prolific joke tellers, and people that um, kind of do their thing and have made a huge success out of it. Frank Skinner, I think he said in his book, one of the ways he realizes he needed to be a comedian was he decided that if he thought something was funny in his head, he was going to say it out loud. Because if it's funny to him, it must be funny to other people. Maybe not everyone, but some people. And I love that idea that for years you might have things in your head that are funny to you. So why would you think it's only funny to you? Maybe it is funny to other people. And then you find your audience. So people like that, I love. I think Lee Mack's one of the best comedians. Um, I also like Michael McIntyre, controversial though that may be. I think he's a phenomenal comedian. Um, I love people, uh, comedians like Catherine Ryan, Ashlyn B. Mae Martin is one of my favourite comedians to sit and watch as well. Um, so people who genuinely make me laugh. In terms of life heroes, um, I couldn't, wouldn't be able to do what I did without my wife, who is phenomenal uh, she gets me she kind of gets what it is to have to be out on the road gigging to be away from home while she's looking after the children she's i think appreciated my struggle during lockdown that i've not been able to go out on the road and be away gigging and working and she supported every little project i've done from from the kids joke books to the podcast to everything else um, her support is phenomenal um, I've got a couple of friends who have helped push and inspire me. Uh, one of my best friends is a guy called Richard Pollins, who was born without legs. And even now in his forties, there's nothing he can't do. He, he has prosthetic legs. And a few years ago, he did a 40 kilometer walk for charity to raise money for his mum's, uh, she um, was diagnosed with motor neurons disease and he wanted to raise money for her or for, for the charity. And this is a guy who has no legs and managed to walk 40 kilometers in order to do so. So people like that who inspire me because all the stuff we moan about in our lives, we don't know what other people are going through at all. Yeah. Like what we go through is always going to, there's always someone better or worse off. Always. And I, look, lockdown's been hard. Lockdown has been really, really hard. I've hit some very low points, but they are not anywhere near as low as other people's. So, you know, we are, we all live our own lives. We all have joys and heartbreak in our own lives and everyone else has the same so be kind to each other be be respectful of that if you're mad at someone in the queue at tesco because they're nearer to you than two meters maybe give them a bit of a break before just having a go at, you know just be sensitive and be kind to other people and if you have people in your lives that you respect and you love tell them yeah you never know when they make may go <laughs> yeah i think also 
is, is that your quote for the rest? I might be my quote. What what was my quote? The quote you like to live um, your rest of your life by. <laughs> um, I mean, the the thing I've said to m I think the thing I've said most during lockdown is, oh, it's just shit, isn't it? Um, because it is, it, it's shit for everyone and no one's shit is any more important than anyone else's. But to reflect on the fact that it's shit for everybody is, is useful. Um, I think be kind is a good one. Don't be a dick is probably what I would try and live my life by uh, as much as possible. I don't think I achieve that. I'm sure there are loads of people I come across every day who are like, that guy's a dick. But if I, pr if I can try and live my life by one thing, it would be, don't be a dick. Okay. <laughs> That's a good quote. That's a good board thing. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and what, one thing I'd like to ask you, what would you like to plug? Well, I would like to, I'd like to plug the gender gap, uh, in, uh, the gender pay gap. Okay, let's do that. Can we, we can't <laughs> solve that today, but I'd like, to, I'd like to plug that. Um, no, I, what would I like to plug apart from that? Um, me, I guess I, I'm a freelancer, I'm self-employed and I'm doing my own thing and I want to hopefully get recognized for that, whether that means that uh, you just find me on social media at Philips Comedy. There's only one L in Philip. So at Philips Comedy for all social media. That's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, uh, all of that. Um, I do have a joke book for children based on the comedy show that's out now uh, and available for Christmas. So if anyone would like to buy that, it's $6.99 with free postage um, in the UK. It's philipsimon.co.uk forward slash shop. And you can buy that there. And the profits from that book are going to fair share. So it's not even really helping me, that book, um, except the project side of it has been fantastically rewarding for me. But it raises money for fair share, which most people will be familiar with because of the work that Marcus Rashford did encouraging the government to feed children which you'd think would be something they would want to do anyway. Um, so raise some money for them and provide laughter for children at Christmas. And I also have a podcast, which is due talking to me, which is out every Friday morning. <laughs> and yeah, just, just send them over and I'll plug them on. And thank I'll, you. Um, yeah, just best of luck with everything. Hope your back gets sorted out and I'll, I'll see you when Thank comedy you. returns to normal. <laughs> Let's hope it's soon. Let's hope it's soon. They got the vaccine. Good so. they, they have a vaccine. Yeah, they do have a vaccine. Whether, whether people will take it, who knows. But it's looking promising. It's always hope. <laughs> right, yes. I'll see you later and take care. Cheers. I'll, should I say Simon? I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> No, see you later, man. Take care. Take care. Cheers. Bye.